This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can catch brand new episodes every Thursday or simply subscribe to ensure that you get regular updates to your podcast feed. This week we're taking a look at the Christmas traditions that started in the Victorian period and are still with us today. We'll also examine the role that Charles Dickens played in shaping our Christmas traditions and find out how the man himself celebrated the festive season with his family. Exploring all of these ideas, our Properties Historians team leader, Dr Andrew Han, and director of the Dickens Museum in London, Dr Cindy Sugru. Hello there. Hello. Now, the Victorians didn't invent Christmas, but is it fair to say that they modernised it and revamped it, Cindy? Yes, indeed. Christmas became an enormously popular holiday during the Victorian period and transformed into the family-focused and child-centred celebration that we know it as today. So what are the main similarities between Victorian Christmases and modern Christmases? So if you were transported back to Christmas in, say, 1850, it would be very recognisable. Christmas trees, decorations made with greenery, holly, ivy, mistletoe. You would see Christmas cards and sing Christmas carols. And of course, there would be a roast dinner, mulled wine, mince pies, steam puddings, all the lovely and delicious things we associate with Christmas today. Andrew, one of the focal points of the festive season, of course, is having a Christmas tree, as Cindy has just mentioned. Where did this idea of having a decorated tree in someone's home come from? The tradition of a decorated Christmas tree comes from German traditions. It's associated with St Boniface and in the early modern period you get German Protestants who brought decorated trees into their homes and we think this tradition might relate to the idea of the tree of paradise of medieval mystery plays because these were usually performed on the 24th of December and they commemorated of course the story of Adam and Eve and in such plays, the tree had been decorated with apples to represent the forbidden fruit and wafers to represent the Eucharist and redemption. And when you adapt this as a Christmas tree, of course, the apples are replaced by red balls and later baubles. And you can sort of see how the link goes through there. And it's really only in the early 19th century that the custom starts spreading out from Germany across the different parts of Europe taken by the, by the European nobility and elite. And you see the first Christmas tree in Britain, really, what we know of, was introduced by the German-born Queen Charlotte, the wife of George III, who gave a, a Christmas tree to her children in 1800s. And up until then, really, 
what the tradition had been in Britain had been decorating their homes and churches with just evergreen branches rather than whole trees. So it's this, this tradition of the Christmas tree really dates back to then. But of course, we often associated it, it's sort of popularising with Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Again, the German connection there. And you see um, the Queen is used to having a Christmas tree in her youth because her mother, the German-born Duchess of Kent, gave her a Christmas tree throughout her childhood. And there's a reference in her journal when she's 13 years old in 1832. She writes, after dinner, we went into the drawing room near the dining room. There were two large round tables on which were placed two trees hung with lights and sugar ornaments, and all the presents are placed around the trees. So it's a very recognisable scene that we would recall. But it's only really after her marriage to Prince Albert that the Christmas tree gets popularised amongst the middle classes, amongst ordinary people. And you see that, for instance, uh, with an article appeared in the Illustrated London News in 1848, which has a big picture of the royal family around a Christmas tree on the front cover. And it describes the tree at Windsor Castle and, and what was happening there and you know the spreading of the presents around the tree. So I think that's really where the tradition comes from. Of course, another element that helps to bring some festive cheer into people's homes, apart from Christmas trees, is the display of Christmas cards. These were also a Victorian invention, weren't they, Cindy? Yes, indeed. Sir Henry Cole is widely recognised as having produced the first commercial Christmas card in 1843. That, in fact, is the same year that Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol, which I know we will come on to shortly. So Henry Cole was a government official, but also an inventor and designer. And he's probably most well known as being one of the driving forces behind the Great Exhibition of 1851. Uh, he was also the founding director of the V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum here in London. So this Christmas card depicted in the centre a happy family gathered around a table drinking wine with a little scene on either side of that centrepiece of the poor being fed and clothed. And the printed text on the card read, A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. So the Christmas card was initially embraced by the middle and upper classes. But when, in the 1860s, commercial printing of Christmas cards began in a widespread fashion, this was a new process of colour printing, lowered the manufacturing cost and therefore the price. So the cards became much more affordable and the trend really took off from that point. I presume there are lots of designs then that you could have for your Christmas cards. It wouldn't just be one design and one print. No, and it's interesting. The The first one that Henry Cole had produced, he instructed the design of it and wanted it really to depict a family scene. So hence having the family at the heart of it, but also that tradition of Christmas being a time to help others, that charity and goodwill. So displaying these little scenes on either side of the family was to sort of reinforce and indicate that it was an important time to help those less fortunate than oneself. Yes, and we'll get on to those themes of selflessness and conviviality and fraternity through the Dickens discussion that will evolve through our conversation today. Christmas food, of course, is um, another element that uh, you would like to enjoy with your family whether Victorian times or now, what would a Victorian Christmas dinner have looked like, for example, in a large country house, Andrew? Well, it actually wouldn't have looked all that different than a Christmas dinner would have looked in the Georgian period. There was still large quantities of roast meat was the sort of centrepiece of the menu. So you would have, if we look at Audley End, where we have 
some kitchen consumption books, which actually show all the food that was eaten in the house during the year. And if you look at Christmas week for sort of, say, eighteen the early 1850s, you'll find a large quantity of roast beef being eaten, also mutton, some turkey, and, and also venison. So, so it's a wide range of different meats. So in general, this was the sort of the idea that Christmas is a time for feasting, and feasting is when you, you consume high-value, expensive foodstuffs, and that means primarily meat. So, there, yeah, there was a large quantity of meat in the Christmas meal, but there was other things as well, of course. Are there any other items that were popular during the Victorian period that might seem unusual today? Well, we know, for instance, that Queen Victoria was very partial to roast swan at Christmas, and this was at its best around Christmas time, so that was a good time to be eating it. And, of course, the cook at Audley End, Avis Crocom, in her manuscript cookbook, which we have, there is a, a recipe for roast swan, so we know that that was something that would have been uh, eaten at the time, as late as the 1880s. Other sort of Christmas staples that might be unusual to us today would be something like frumenty. This was a, a popular dish throughout the medieval period, but it's still eaten into the 19th century, and it's a type of porridge, a sort of boiled grain dish, which is boiled up with milk or broth. And although it's a sort of peasant staple in the main, it could be made more luxurious by adding things like almonds, currants, sugar, saffron, etc., to make it more palatable. And it could be served up either with meat as a pottage also used as a a subtlety that's a dish that was served up between other courses in a banquet something else you might have oyster soup that was often eaten as a starter i mean oysters are usually in the 19th century considered to be uh, food for the poor so they'd be uh, often served up a pickled oysters served up with beer at the local tavern but they're also used uh, oyster soup as a tasty starter and then for dessert you'd have something like nestle road pudding this is a, a quite an unusual sort of Victorian ice cream style dessert, which is made out of pureed chestnuts with some fruit in as well. And it was actually created especially for the 19th century Russian diplomat, Count Karl von Nesselrode. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a widely eaten in the 19th century in the Victorian period. That sounds really tasty, that one, actually. I'm quite, quite interested in seeing what that, that looks and tastes yeah. like. Yeah. So that's N-E-S-S-E-L-R-O-D-E, if people want to look it up. The other fruity-sounding one was the frumenty, F-R-U-M-E-N-T-Y. The oyster <laughs> soup I think I could probably pass on. <laughs> but um, what would Christmas dinners, though, in middle-class households look like? Um, perhaps it's a bit more basic compared to uh, what we've just been describing. Well, for a middle-class household, you know, the, the traditional image is the Christmas goose. So, they were, you know, you would have your Christmas goose as the centrepiece of the meal, and that would be surrounded by the, a lot of vegetables. Uh, by this period, it's not just the poor that eat vegetables. Vegetables are, are, are being consumed by the middle classes and also by the uh, aristocracy as well. So, and, and it's the sorts of vegetables that we associate with modern Christmas dinner. So you have potatoes, sprouts, cabbage, parsnips, carrots, the sort of, sort of vegetables that are available in the winter season. So that's the sort of thing you could expect to find. And then for dessert, you'd have things like Christmas cake, figgy pudding, sugar plums, and they'd be washed down with warm brandy or mulled wine. So it's actually getting to be quite the sort of the food that you would associate with a modern Christmas dinner, really. And what about poorer people? What would they have eaten at Christmas? Well, for the poor, it would be a case of usually they would try and sort of save up and have some meat at Christmas. So you'd be you might have a piece of beef or maybe chicken or perhaps rabbit if you were poor. I mean, an example being here, um, 
for people in the workhouse. So if you've got, in 1896, inmates who were in the Richmond workhouse in London, they received 200 weight of beef, that's around 91 kilograms of beef at Christmas, and the same amount of plum pudding. So you get this idea of the, having roast beef and plum pudding as their Christmas fare. So not too impoverished and uh, quite a nice sort of spread for people, even from uh, the lower classes. Our modern day Christmas usually, well, for a lot of people, will feature turkey. But where does that come from? Cindy, What do you have an idea on that? Well, I think we can stake a claim for Charles Dickens and his book A Christmas Carol, really helping to cement the idea of turkey being the bird of choice. You might recall in the book Bob Cratchit and his family settling down to a rather meagre goose. But at the end of the book, on Christmas Day, Scrooge sends the prize turkey to the Cratchit family. And it's not surprising that the prize turkey was perhaps still hanging in the butcher's shop on Christmas Day because it was still an unusual meat and beyond the means of ordinary people. But we also know that following the enormous success and ongoing popularity of A Christmas Carol, that Victorians began to emulate the festivities as described in the book, and turkey quickly became the bird of choice for Christmas dinner. I see. So can we credit Charles Dickens with helping to popularise the turkey just through his A Christmas Carol? Absolutely. And that came into not only public consciousness, but in the press and, and commentary at the time even the year just following its publication in 1843. And A Christmas Carol also gives us an insight into the array of festive fare at that time. Again, you might remember the second of the three ghosts that visit Scrooge, the ghost of Christmas present. When he makes his entrance, he's seated on top of a huge pile of food and Dickens describes it, all the, the meats and vegetables, oysters, chestnuts, apples, oranges, cakes, steaming bowls of punch and so on. So all of that was just conjuring up that sense of the ideal Victorian Christmas. We often pull crackers at Christmas these days. Would there have been crackers on Victorian tables at Christmas? There would indeed. We know that the cracker was actually a Victorian invention. It was invented in London in 1847 by a confectioner called Tom Smith. He wanted to introduce Londoners to the French bonbon, which is a sort of sugared almond wrapped up in a twist of waxed paper. And this is still widely available in French patisseries today. But to make his version a bit different, Smith decided to include a sort of motto in each packet, similar to sort of what you might get in a fortune cookie. And he was also inspired to add what he described as a crackle element after hearing a log cracking on his fire. And he found that to do so, he had to increase the size of the wrapper that he put round the bonbon. And in doing so, he created the cracker. Uh, and later, the sweet was, of course, replaced with a uh, trinket. And then Tom Smith's son, Walter, he introduced some of the other elements like the paper hats and the colourful designs and whatever, because he was trying to distinguish his crackers from those of competitors. So really, it's a family affair there, really, the invention of the cracker. <laughs> Christmas gifts as well. Uh, they are a bit of a cracker, aren't they? They're the things that uh, the children certainly look forward to, I think, the most. But when did Christmas Day become this focal point for giving Christmas gifts, Cindy? Well, it's interesting because there there had been a, a long-standing tradition of giving gifts to children on the feast day of St. Nicholas, who was a patron saint of children. And his feast day is the 6th of December. 
Um, but gift giving between adults had long been associated with the midwinter festival, the winter solstice, as well as with New Year celebrations. So the shift to Christmas Day being the focal point for gift giving happened during the course of the 19th century, strongly influenced by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, putting family life at the centre of society and Christmas being promoted as a time for family celebrations. How did the tradition start then of uh, children putting out a stocking in order to receive presents from Father Christmas as well? Well, I think Andrew will know a bit more about this than, than I do, but it was certainly a centuries-old tradition linked again to St Nicholas in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Yes, indeed. Uh, again, as Cindy was saying, the tradition of the Christmas stocking is, is linked to St Nicholas, and the legend has it that St Nicholas dropped bags of gold down the chimney into the stockings of a poor man's daughters to provide dowries for the daughter so they could get married. And this then leads directly through to the modern tradition of hanging up stockings by the fire, which really spread across all different parts of Europe and reaches Britain too. And then the stockings are traditionally hung up, as Cindy was saying, on St Nicholas Day, the 6th of December. And it's only really since the uh, 19th century, like lots of other traditions, that the idea of Christmas gift giving has moved to Christmas Eve. And we have the traditional of hanging out your Christmas stockings on Christmas Eve. And although it's mostly associated with children, the idea of Christmas stockings, it can also be sometimes involving adults too. I mean, for instance, I've got an example from Rest Park in Bedfordshire, where during World War One, the matron of the hospital, Nan Herbert, provided Christmas stockings for all of the convalescing troops. And she records in her diary in Christmas of 1914 that Following the opening of the uh, stockings, there was a pandemonium of penny whistles and toy trumpets broke forth. You know, so the idea that all the, <laughs> the convalescing soldiers are, are receiving their gifts and uh, making Have, merry. Having fun, yes. We covered that, didn't we, Andrew, in a previous episode where Rest Park became the first World War hospital uh, there. Queen Victoria and Prince Albert also gave each other presents, but when they did their birthday presents, these were unwrapped and laid out on tables at Osborne, their home on the Isle of Wight. So did the family do the same with Christmas gifts, these unwrapped, table-laid presents? They did indeed, although we must remember that Christmas for Victoria and Albert was always spent at Windsor rather than at Osborne. But yes, they did. The presents would be laid out unwrapped. Victoria insisted they were spread across tables, around the Christmas tree, which was also on a table, then what would happen is that the family would come into the room and then they often had either a court artist or a photographer take a picture or draw a picture of, of the ensemble of the, all the presents all laid out in the room before things could be opened. And there's references in the Queen's diaries to the sorts of things that were exchanged. Victoria and Albert famously gave each other pieces of jewellery, works of art, sculptures, paintings, all the sorts of things that you see around Osborne House, very similar to the sorts of range of goods they gave each other as birthday presents really but also the children and grandchildren would often give Victoria and Albert presents as well which they'd made themselves usually sort of paintings embroidery or handicrafts that they'd made themselves it was a quite a family occasion where everybody got involved many people will know that um, Queen Victoria was left absolutely bereft and heartbroken by the death of her husband Prince Albert what happened you know in terms of gift giving and to family Christmases after his death? Well, after Albert died, everything changed for, for, for Queen Victoria and she actually changed the, the place at which she spent Christmas. So where she'd always spent Christmas at Windsor 
during the happy years of her early marriage, after Albert died, she always spent Christmas at Osborne. But the old traditions that she had continued at Windsor were just transferred to Osborne. So there was still the exchange of gifts on Christmas Eve, because the tradition in the royal household was always that the gifts were exchanged on Christmas Eve, not Christmas Day. And first of all, the servants would receive their gifts in the servants' hall, and then the family got their presents in the dining room. And again, they were all laid out on tables as before. And we got a a quote here from December 1862, shortly after Albert had died. And she describes, Then I went into the dining room where our tree and presents were and took all the children into the room, at the ends of which, under the dear family picture, the children had placed two little Belgian pictures which beloved Albert had bought at Brussels for me. So this idea, the last Christmas presents that Albert had bought for, for Victoria were laid out there at Osborne. You mentioned that the Queen has given presents to her servants before her immediate family there. Did she have a lot to to buy and to organise? Because she must have had a lot of servants at at either of those properties. She did indeed. I mean, Queen Victoria was very keen to sort of support her household and the servants. And she did make sure that they were very well cared for and catered for at at Christmas. But she had a very sort of maternal interest in their well-being. And we know that, for instance, at Osborne, there were well over 100 servants who received a present on Christmas Eve, and the royal family would join them in the servants' hall, which is in the uh, service yard at Osborne. They would all receive their presents first, and these gifts would have been things like books, clothing, food, trinkets. And the Queen would then give gifts also to her close personal servants, like her dresses and pages in the pavilion. It was only then that she would go to the present room to look at the presents that the family had given to each other. Lots of presents to buy for the servants then. Do we know exactly how many servants it would be? Certainly at Osborne, it would be over 100, 120 servants that were receiving gifts. So a lot Mm. of people to buy presents for. One assumes that the Queen would have had some help from some of her assistants in terms of (laughs) purchasing all these presents. But it was a a large undertaking to make sure that everybody received a gift. And all the uh, the children of the, uh, the servants as well, where there were estate workers that had children, they all received a gift too. Is this gift-giving to people who aren't your exact contemporaries further down on the socio-hierarchical scale in the class system? Was it the done thing to sort of give presents or to help people in a lesser position than you? It was indeed. I mean, there's a widespread tradition, the idea of paternalism, that you, if you're a, a, a gentleman or, or a member of the gentry aristocracy, that you should give gifts to your estate workers and servants, whatever, at Christmas time. It's a widespread tradition right across Europe. And it's often associated with the uh, giving of gifts to the poor on St. Stephen's Day, which is the 26th of December. And in the UK, we call this Boxing Day. And that's possibly because of the alms box, which was placed in the parish church to collect donations for the poor. But it could also be associated with the box of gifts that was often given to servants by their employers each year. And indeed, if you think about it, the tradition of giving gifts to servants on the 26th of December goes back a long way. So if we look at the accounts for Battle Abbey from the 13th century and also from the early 16th century, those record spending each year on Christmas presents for the monastery servants, which amounted to around 30 shillings. So quite a lot of money being spent on providing for the monastery's retainers. 
then again, if we look at Audley End, the servants at Audley End in the 1860s, they had Boxing Day off. They, they obviously had to work on Christmas Day, providing Christmas fare for the family. But on Boxing Day, they were given the day off and were given a dinner of beef, mutton and the usual Christmas fare in the servants' hall, along with their families. And even then, moving into the 20th century, we got Sylvia Grant Dalton at Brodsworth Hall. She continues the uh, tradition of seasonal philanthropy that her family had instituted in earlier decades by throwing a Christmas party on Boxing Day for the local Brodsworth school, for children from the school. And they each got a present from under the Christmas tree and shared in a delicious spread of party food. So you get this idea of, of the 26th of December as being allocated as the day to provide for your servants and retainers. What you've been describing there, Andrew, I think is interesting, is that there isn't actually a set definition for where the name Boxing Day came from. It's ambiguous. I'm inclining towards the idea of the Christmas boxes for servants, simply because of the fact that it is so closely associated with giving gifts to servants and giving them to people working on your estate. But the other explanation of it being associated with the arms box is is just as plausible. So I I think it's one of those things, you know, it's one of those traditions that has an obscure origin. But I mean, I remember my family had used to have a large box, decorated box in the middle of the kitchen table on Boxing Day in the shape of a house with a roof. And then you'd lift the roof off and inside there'd be lots of gifts for all the children. So it's a tradition that continues to this day. Well, those um, properties you mentioned there were Battle Abbey in West Sussex, Audley End House and Gardens in Essex and Broadsworth Hall, which is in South Yorkshire near Doncaster. So moving on to this Christmas Carol connection, the Dickensian connection. Christmas Carol, of course, was a book by Charles Dickens, the famous author, in which charity is one of the key themes and we've already touched on it. So where does A Christmas Carol feature, Cindy, in Dickens' creative output in terms of the timeline of what was published and when? So A Christmas Carol was written in the autumn of 1843 in just six weeks, at the same time that Dickens was writing and publishing in monthly instalments his sixth novel, Martin Chuzzlewit. So Dickens was just 31 years old and had already rocketed to international fame on the back of a number of successful novels, including Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby. Dickens was already by this time enormously popular in America, which led to a lengthy trip there the year before in 1842. And from that trip, he produced a travelogue called American Notes. Now, this was actually rather critical of America and Americans, and this significantly dented his popularity there and his book sales started to plummet. His most recent book, uh, which was The Old Curiosity Shop, had had a mixed reception, and Martin Chuzzlewit, being serialised at the time, wasn't selling very well at all. So in the autumn of 1843, Dickens was under huge pressure, both professionally and financially, to produce a hit. So that's the sort of context that he was working in when he came upon the, the notion of A Christmas Carol. I see. And was this his first foray into Christmas storytelling? It was his first substantial piece of writing about Christmas, but he had written short stories, sketches about Christmas before. In fact, the first one published in 1835 when he was just 23 years old. Christmas also featured in his very first novel, Pickwick Papers, which started to appear in monthly instalments 
the following year, 1836. Uh, and in Pickwick Papers, for anyone who knows it, Dickens presents a very idealized traditional Christmas at a large country house called Dingley Dell. So Christmas and the, the importance of Christmas to Dickens' own life starts to appear quite early on in his writing. You've touched a little bit upon the pressure that uh, Dickens was under to create this literary hit. Was there anything else that was driving Dickens to write A Christmas Carol? There was. I'll, I'll give you a bit of context here. So the, the carol, as we affectionately abbreviate it, was written during a tumultuous time in Britain's history. Dickens's London was a, a huge metropolis that had expanded quite rapidly since around 1800, and poverty was rife throughout Britain's industrial centres, including London. And families were relying on children, even young children, to help make ends meet. So children were a cheap and very little regulated form of labour, and they could be found working in really dangerous environments such as factories and mines. So I should add two things here about Dickens himself. He had spent a period of time as a child labourer in a boot polish factory in London when he was just 12 years old. So he had a real empathy for the increasing numbers of children working in these industrial settings. And also, although we remember Dickens as a novelist, before he turned his hand to writing fiction, he'd been a journalist, an investigative reporter, as we would know them today. And this continued throughout his life. And through his journalism, he'd become a very ardent campaigner for social and political reform. So going back to your question about his motivation for writing A Christmas Carol, in 1834, the new poor law established a new system of workhouses. And these ensured that the poor were housed and fed and clothed. But at the same time, they weren't intended to be comfortable places. In fact, the policies around the workhouses were to really encourage people out of reliance on them. So they did this by creating quite harsh places to be. They were almost intentionally prison-like. They separated families, wives from husbands and children from parents. So Dickens was disturbed by the cruelty he observed in these new workhouses. And as early as 1836, just two years after the poor law came into effect, he shone a very harsh spotlight on the workhouse in Oliver Twist. So then moving ahead to the 1840s and the spring of 1843 specifically, a friend of Dickens who was involved in the Royal Commission of Inquiry into Children's Employment, he sent Dickens the commission's report, which was the result of three-year investigation into working conditions in mines and factories across Great Britain. And this included thousands of pages of testimony from children, some children as young as five. And so the report's findings were utterly shocking. And Dickens wrote back to his friend, saying that he was perfectly stricken down by the evidence of widespread suffering amongst these child workers, and that he was resolved to take action. And Dickens said he would use a sledgehammer force to raise awareness and make change. So he was originally thinking of writing a newspaper article or a pamphlet. But then a few months later, in the autumn of 1843, Dickens visited a ragged school here in London. These were charitable institutions that provided free education for poor children. And this is where he observed at first hand the scale of child poverty and what it really looked like. And around the same time, Dickens also travelled up to the north to Manchester, where he was 
confronted by further really deeply harrowing scenes. And this cemented in his mind the fact that severe poverty was rife across the country. And then the idea of how to develop, uh, sorry, to deliver this sledgehammer blow occurred to him. Rather than writing an article or a pamphlet which would disappear, he would write a book, a work of fiction for the Christmas book market. People were giving gifts and, and a beautiful book at Christmas time was, was a popular item. So he thought, this is what I'll do. And he hoped that a story would reach and resonate with a much wider public and give momentum to the social and political change he was hoping to force. So he wrote the book in just six weeks. It was published on the 19th of December and the first print run of 6,000 copies had sold out completely by Christmas Eve. So in just six days. Goodness me. So um, he really did do a lot of research in order to funnel all that knowledge that he had acquired into this story, which was produced, as you say, in six weeks. So it sounds like there was a lot of concentration of issues in the writing, and that really came out very well indeed. And it was that sense of urgency. You know, he felt that he needed to do something and he'd been mulling this over for a while. And it just, it all came together with these various influences at a time when he thought he could also capitalise. You know, he was needing a hit and he could take advantage of that Christmas book market at the same time as satisfying this desire to make a real difference to the lives of the hundreds of thousands of, of poor children across the country. Yes, there was a perfect combination of different aspects that went into this production of the book. That and, of course, the pressing deadline, which a journalist will always know about, uh, me included. The deadline does focus the mind somewhat, I must say. So for anyone who hasn't read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, what's the general gist of the story? The story is about an old miser, Ebenezer Scrooge, who is visited on Christmas Eve by the ghost of his dead business partner, Jacob Marley. Marley then sends three ghosts or spirits in turn to haunt Scrooge in an effort to get him to change his harsh and cruel ways and to make amends for past wrongs. So it's the ultimate story of, of redemption with very strong messages about the importance of kindness and compassion. And it reminds us that we can all do something to help those less fortunate to make a difference in the world. So the moral message encapsulated in this had a really powerful impact as soon as the book was published. Its key characters, Scrooge, Tiny Tim, the Cratchit family, entered into the public consciousness. And of course, adaptations and performances of the story appeared uh, within weeks, in fact, of its publication. And through that, reached even more people than the written book itself ever did. Yes, that's interesting, Matt, isn't it? You don't see it as a play that's uh, performed at Christmas time, do you? We don't now, but it was, you know, within a matter of weeks after it was published, it, it had its first outing on the stage. And of course, most people, if they know A Christmas Carol, they'll probably know it from one of the many wonderful adaptations for television or, or cinema. And I have to just add here that the Charles Dickens Museum's official favourite version of A Christmas Carol is The Muppet Christmas Carol. The is transformation it? of Scrooge is absolutely perfect. It is, it's one of the most authentic. It, it uses Dickens's words. It's one of the closest adaptations and I think the most fun. I'm quite a fan of the Bill Murray comedy Scrooged, where he plays the TV executive who has changed. Yes, that's um, another good one. 
that's definitely a good one. Um, you don't see it much these days, but uh, perhaps it will be on this Christmas. One thing that uh, you do see with that Scrooge version is the various ghosts, and they, they are quite lifelike for deathly kind of figures, if you see what I mean. Where did this idea of ghosts of Christmas past, present and future come from? Was this just a completely original idea, or did Dickens borrow it from somewhere else? Well, it's interesting because the way he describes and evokes each of those three spirits that visit Scrooge were very much unusual creations, particularly the the ghost of Christmas past. It's a weird little character that's described as as something that doesn't exactly have a form. It's almost a shape-shifting sort of creature. It's quite fascinating. But Victorians generally were fascinated with ghosts and the supernatural, and the telling of ghost stories really enjoyed a revival during the Victorian period. Dickens himself had loved ghost stories since his childhood and enjoyed telling them by the fire during the long winter evenings. And by the time Dickens was writing A Christmas Carol, there was a really well-established tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. So Dickens was drawing on this popular winter custom to provide the setting for his tale. It's interesting how these days we separate out Halloween and then have Christmas as this thing that happens after bonfire night. But I think the general winter back in previous centuries, it was more linked to this idea of the supernatural, wasn't it, I think? Is that right? In, in, in the general cultural consciousness? Yes, very much so. You can imagine, of course, you know, there wasn't radio or television or other entertainment. So in the very long nights, uh, you would be sitting by a fire, hopefully, with a candle. And the fact that firelight and candlelight and flickering can create out of the corner of your eye, you imagine you've seen something. And we don't see as well in the dark and and you, you hear things, they become almost magnified. And that sense of being surrounded by things in the dark that you can't see. So you can imagine it's a very common thing to tell those ghost stories at that time of year. I can imagine people getting together and reading this new book, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. You know, the first year it came out and really sort of huddling round and enjoying the story at candlelight. How successful was the book? Well, it's interesting. In terms of how much money Dickens made, not very much from the first edition. He only made about £200. And this is because it was conceived as this beautiful gift book for Christmas. It had hand-coloured illustrations, so the production costs were quite high. But it had been reprinted seven times by the following spring in different editions and including some very cheap, affordable editions. And indeed, it's never been out of print. So yes, it was a huge commercial success and a huge cultural success as well. Have you got a copy or an early copy at the Dickens Museum in London? We do. We have one of the very first editions and uh, it is a beautiful, extraordinary thing with these hand-coloured illustrations. But it's fascinating because it was reproduced and reprinted so quickly afterwards. Even though it's set at Christmas time, people wanted it throughout the spring and well into the, into the future years. I expect the first version is particularly rare, is it not, and quite expensive? It is. Only 6,000 were produced, but we only know of a few hundred that still exist in the world today. Every now and again, one pops up on the radar. It might come up for auction because it's been in someone's private library or their private collection for years. Interesting. 
To what extent did Dickens and A Christmas Carol in particular help to revive Christmas traditions that were perhaps on the wane? Yeah, so Christmas Carol and how Christmas celebrations are portrayed in it really did help to make Christmas fashionable again, um, reinforcing it as this family-focused holiday and a time of year for charitable giving. And as I mentioned earlier, the book led to Turkey becoming the bird of choice for the Christmas dinner. It's interesting that it was on the wane. Uh, Why is that then? I think because it had, um, and this is going back centuries, Christmas had been associated with that midwinter solstice festival and it was a time of drinking and feasting. It wasn't really seen as a a family holiday and it was during the Victorian period very much consciously led by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert and their own family creating this sense of the midwinter festival and its charitable associations being focused around the family. How much do we know about Dickens's own Christmas celebrations then? We know quite a lot. <laughs> Christmas was Dickens's favourite holiday. He grew up in a family that celebrated it. And from letters and memoirs and other material in the museum's collection, we can confidently say that Dickens celebrated Christmas very much as, as it's depicted in A Christmas Carol. And in fact, Dickens liked to extend the celebration across the whole festive period. So the 12 days of Christmas from Christmas Eve to the Feast of the Epiphany on the 6th of January. And this also became solidified in the Dickens family celebrations when Charles and his wife Catherine had their first child, Charles Dickens Jr., Charlie. Charlie was born on the 6th of January. So they started Christmas on Christmas Eve with a big party and they finished it uh, on the Feast of the Epiphany with a big party for Charlie on the 6th of January. So in addition to eating and drinking, the family would play games, they'd go on long walks, put on plays, play music. Then later in Dickens's life, when he was living in the countryside near Rochester in Kent, he would organise sporting events, inviting local people to join his guests on Boxing Day for a series of athletic contests. And he did this for prizes. He'd offer prize money. And it was great fun. And the event ran all days and included um, running races, hurdles, but also things like a sack race, the three-legged race, and wheelbarrow races, which had to be performed while blindfolded to make it more fun. So he liked to bring people together to enjoy not just eating and drinking, but all sorts of entertainments. We've been describing a Victorian Christmas, of course, during this podcast, but can English Heritage members and visitors experience a Victorian Christmas at an English Heritage property this winter season? Well, I mean, I guess... You couldn't do worse than to go to Osborne House for a Victorian Christmas. We always each year decorate the house with a Christmas tree and and greenery around the house. So, I mean, that's, a I would say, probably the best place to celebrate a Victorian Christmas. And we also have this year our traditional audience with Father Christmas at a number of our sites. That includes Kenwood House in London, at Belsay Hall in Northumberland, Bolsover Castle, Derbyshire, Brodsworth Hall in Yorkshire and Kenilworth Castle in the West Midlands. So lots of opportunities to sort of get into the Christmas spirit this year. And hopefully you're not too far away from any one of those. Cindy, the Dickens Museum also has an English heritage connection, doesn't it? Because, you know, there's a certain marker on the building. 
Yes, indeed. So uh, the Charles Dickens Museum here in Doughty Street is comprised of two Georgian terraced houses, numbers 48 and 49 Doughty Street. And number 48 is the house in which Dickens lived when he established himself as a, as a writer and, and skyrocketed to worldwide fame. Um, so on the outside of number 48, there is indeed a blue plaque giving Dickens's dates. And also, we're um, very much dressed for Christmas now. The halls are decked with greenery. We, we're putting up a Christmas tree and we're, we're getting the whole of Dickens's house ready for the Christmas celebration that he would have enjoyed at the time. Yes, and we should probably say that when people are listening to this, it's going to be later than when we recorded. So you and your colleagues are currently really in the festive spirit with Christmas jumpers and all this sort of, sort we of, sort are. of thing. We are. I've taken a break to do this podcast this afternoon if from the middle of hanging things up. So I was up and down a ladder and I've got my Christmas jumper on and I've had my first mince pie of the season and very delicious it was too. I'm surprised they're even in the shops, but I suppose that's how early people get ready for Christmas these days. Well, um, I, Charles, I had a, a slice of Stollen at lunchtime today, so <laughs> we're all getting into the Christmas spirit early this year, I think. Stollen? Oh, oh you'll have to educate me, Andrew. What, what's Stollen? It's a sort of cake with marzipan and, and currants in that's uh, a sort of German delicacy uh, I've had oh, at, I at Christmas, but uh, I, it's one of my favourites. Yes, it's quite crumbly. It's quite a short pastry. So you bite into it and it sort of melts in the mouth. It's yeah. absolutely delicious. Is that quite a Victorian invention? I have no idea, but I imagine it might be. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a little thing you could imagine being brought over by Prince Albert, but I, I really don't know whether whether we can, uh, we can link that to him as well. Yes, quite possibly. Well, whether or not it's Victorian, it's perhaps something that I'd like to add to my celebrations this year. So I might uh, put that on the shopping list. But um, what are you looking forward to for Christmas yourselves? I suppose plenty of visitors to English heritage sites for this winter period. I think we are, yes. We're, we're looking forward to welcoming them to our sites this Christmas. We've got our illuminated, enchanted events, of course, at places like Audley End, Elton Palace, and Walmer Castle. We've got audiences with Father Christmas. A lot of our sites will be open over the Christmas period so people can enjoy them. So, yes, we'd love to welcome as many people as, as want to come. And do you think it will be busy at the Dickens Museum as well, Cindy? Yes, indeed. It's it's one of our busiest time of year. So quintessential is the association between Dickens and Christmas. So we'll be open almost every single day during the month of December. And in addition to visiting the museum in its festive finery, we have a special exhibition called To Be Read at Dusk. And it looks at Dickens and his fascination with ghosts and the supernatural. We also have a number of performances and other events celebrating a Christmas carol, but also a number of Dickens's other Christmas writings. And we'll be closed on Christmas Day and Boxing Day, but otherwise we are here and looking forward to welcoming visitors to Dickens's house. Yes. Andrew, English Heritage Sites, are they fairly well open over the festive period? Because you can imagine that uh, families like to get a bit of fresh air and go for a stroll at some nice properties so yes a lot of our properties will be open over the christmas period they will not be open on christmas day itself but uh, over the christmas week there'll be a lot of our our properties will be open for for visitors to enjoy and of course all our free sites are open year round so people can enjoy them for a christmas day stroll if they wish well thank you both very much for your time in discussing the christmas connection between charles dickens and english heritage and the victorian period i think it's been really interesting i think uh, 
if people are wanting to sort of break up their Christmas shopping with perhaps a trip to London and um, a visit to the museum or a trip to their nearest English heritage site, which is putting on an enchanted event with a Christmas connection, I think that's a great way to sort of merge, you know, history, Christmas past, present and future in in a funny way. So uh, I hope you have a good season and um, thank you both again for your time and illuminating everybody with these facts about the Victorian Christmas and how they affect and have influenced our Christmases this year and in future years. So thank you. Thank you and Merry Christmas. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we dig into the history of winter foods. You had this variety of giant fennel called laser, which is now extinct. That would be immersed in loads of pine kernels in a jar. And the idea was that the kernels would absorb the flavour of the fennel and so that you could use them in all kinds of dishes just to keep the flavours going. Thanks for listening. See you next time.